0: Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. Well, you know, more news stories uh, talking about the rise of uh, the rising fear of Christian nationalism and white supremacy, and some who say that uh, while well, they paint Christianity as sort of a white man's religion, sort of based on, you know, the racism is, Uh, you know, tied to people who belonged uh, to Christianity or Christians. Well, Abdu Murray is a Christian convert from Islam, and he is not white and has written a book that pushes back against this idea that Christianity is for uh, and benefits only Caucasians. Well, the book is called More Than a White Man's Religion, Why the Gospel Has Never Been Merely White male-centered or just another religion and abdu joins me now welcome
1: it's great to be with you Lauren thanks again for having me
0: well it's great to have you here and i wanted to get to your book right away because it's just uh you have so many wonderful things to say and you are a christian apologist in the mm-hmm. highest ranks and uh you have you have just an insight onto faith that many people just most people just don't have. But I, I first want to talk about sort of what we call the elephant in the room, because you <clears throat> work with Ravi Zacharias in his company, Ravi um, Zacharias International Ministries, and of course, mm-hmm. Ravi, after his death, um, you know, the accusations of sex abuse, um, and it, it just really destroyed a lot of his reputation. Um, yeah. And he was your friend. He was my friend. Um Just talk about that, you know, what your experience of in the wake of that and how you're feeling about that.
1: Sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was writing this book, actually, in the middle of I started it before the accusations were out there. And I'm in the middle of uh, the investigation. And I I finished the the section on women, actually, Um, uh, Mm. two days after the report, the, the full report of Robbie's conduct was released. And so you can imagine how odd um and that's putting it mildly, uh, a feeling that actually is because um I did look up to him and a yeah. lot of people did and they they had reasons to do so. But there was this other part and other side that um I just didn't see. Um and maybe I could have, you know, maybe I I could have Um, So writing, you know, I I say this in the book too. Is writing books normally results in sort of a self reflection when the topic forces us? And as an author, you know this. Mm You sort of have this thing where you writing a book forces you to think about whether you're actually living in accordance with what you've written about or trying to persuade others about. Right, right. And uh, and this book is about Jesus, his heart for recognizing, lifting up those who have been trodden upon by those with power, including and especially women. Uh, So as R.C.M. was going through the investigation about Robbie's conduct toward women uh, who were vulnerable, I was especially challenged for that self-reflection. And Mm -hmm. I've had the blessing of walking in life with a woman uh, who was my assistant at the time. And I share her story with her permission in the book um, who had been terribly abused. Um, And uh, my wife and I were able to walk with her and help her through it in whatever ways, you know, feeble ways we were able. Uh, Yet I didn't recognize what Robbie had done to other people. And um, Mm -hmm. there were some, you know. Some indications that maybe I should have pushed a little harder uh, with some questions, but I, I was fooled, and a lot of a lot of people were. Um, but that reflection honestly leads me to a few conclusions. Um, and writing the book in some way was a providential because of its timing. The first one is this: that I'm a blemished person writing for blemished people. I'm not. Um, People think that you, you write a book and you become an expert on everything in that book. And the reality is, is that you write, you become an expert in the way you either should live up to the very things you're saying, right? Um, right. and you're not, um, but you try your hardest. So I'm a blemished person writing for blemished people. And as such, we all, regardless of how well we've regarded the vulnerable in the past, need to examine our blind spots and be ever vigilant to see and help the vulnerable. And Jesus, by comparison, is the unblemished lamb. And, and he became vulnerable for the sake of the vulnerable, but also for the powerful. Yeah. And he exercised his power for the sake of the vulnerable, but also for the powerful, so he could actually teach us what to do with it. Um, and I've come to appreciate the beauty of scripture and the person and work of Christ so much more because of that experience while writing this book. And so, yeah, it's 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 had its profound effect on me. I'm sure it's had its effect on you and others as well because um, he uh, God used him. I really do think God used him. Well, he's an incredible.
0: Uh, he was yeah. just incredibly intelligent and brilliant. I mean, and the fact of this one dalliance, and and I'm wondering, you know, did he actually see it as a sin? I mean, I think that's important to understand because it, you know, it just it just didn't. It, it, you just can't understand it, I and mean, it's like whole. It's it, I hate to use this example again, but it's like King David. You know, it's yeah. just the idea that here you've got this brilliant man after man after God's heart, and yet he he you know he, it, King David you know basically murders to, a, uh, to, to 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 cover up an affair, and yeah. so I mean I don't think Ravi you know rose to that kind of level, but it's just the idea that there's these this sort of compartmentalized you know, life yeah. in the mind of you like, okay, this is not wrong because, you know, I want it or something. I don't know. Um, yeah. the bottom line,
1: think, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. sorry. i was say one of the things I was speaking to somebody who had gone through, he hadn't done what Ravi had done. And, mm-hmm. and um, what Ravi had done, um, uh, as the report had revealed, uh, was, uh, pretty awful. Um, and, um, because uh, there was more than just um, you know, one event and some of it was spiritually manipulative, according to the report. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh having learned a few things and studied, because we're co- still coming to grips with this, I'm still I think I'm going to the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. is that there is this 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 ability um where you have the splitting. And I don't mean split personality, I just mean a splitting of life where you can compartmentalize these things and even justify it. And I was talking to somebody who hadn't done what Ravi had done, but it had a uh, sort of a moral failing. And he said, you know, when you are in darkness, you don't see, mm-hmm. and you put yourself there um, and you justify all kinds of behavior. So the answer in the end is, I don't know. Um, you know, the spiritual condition, I don't know that with David, David did repent and he repented, um, uh, 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 bitterly in, in one sense. Um, and uh, I just don't know the condition uh, of Robbie's heart. Uh, the he
0: problem does. is he will know. never get a chance to repent or even tell yeah. his side of the story. And that's what bothers me. And I know why they didn't say anything until after he died, yeah. but it, yeah. but but you don't give him the opportunity to speak if you wait until he has no voice. And, I, yeah, I, I, and that's the problem that bothers me. I, I, I yeah. just, you know, David, Spoke. David repented because he was still alive to do it.
1: Yeah. You know, Ravi and, and, doesn't and, have that option. Right. And, and But at the same time, uh, I appreciate your understanding, too, is that there are folks who didn't feel like they could say anything until after he had passed because maybe they felt that they they had yeah. no voice if a, yeah. if a really well-known, powerful guy would have stomped right. all over it. Right. So I, we, could, we could appreciate the, the difficulty with which sort of the emotions and the cognition sort of flows with all this stuff. But um, in the end... Um, uh, I've, I've this is why I've come to appreciate Jesus so much more um, and his word so much more because you have blemished people throughout the pages of scripture, which gives it credibility. You know, if you're yeah. going to write a yeah. legend, you're, you're not going to include all the moral failings of its chief figures, right? Um, but, you do, but you do include them because that's the way it actually happened. Yeah. And that gives the Bible even more credibility, but then also by contrast to Jesus who, um uh, constantly encountered people who were being down, downtrodden because of their ethnicity or, or who were using their own ethnicity as a weapon in some areas, some areas. And then, of course, women. Um, there's a reason Michael Bird, the scholar, says that Christianity was being made fun of by the early by the early pagan Romans uh, in the early days of Christianity as a religion for women and children, not because women were running away from it because it's inherently sexist, no, because they were running to it because Christ valued them oh, in, in a way that other religious systems around them, including and especially the pagans around them, would not. They treated women as property and as second-class citizens, but it was the Christian community reflecting who Christ was who didn't do that. And so by comparison and contrast to all that's gone on and all the failings we've seen um, Jesus shines even brighter, and I hope to, to to show that in this book.
0: Well, you say in the book, which I think is interesting, in, in the, the modern day people and social and the culture of today, Christianity is sort of labeled as um, it, it you say is really labeled as the poison, and when it actually is the cure. And mm. I think that's a really really good point. You could explain more about why you say, you know, why is it labeled this poison when it's actually the cure.
1: Yeah, and I go, I actually do a set, make an assessment of how did Christianity become to be labeled a white male religion? How did it become, yeah. you know, this, it's a white man's religion. And I've heard a lot of people, and I've sat with people who have left the faith because they think it's that. And how did it get there? Well, it certainly isn't the demographics of today. I mean, most Christians in the world are not white, and they're not male. Um, So, how did it become this? And I think it's because of the aligning, whether this this narrative is accurate or not, and and sometimes Christians don't help very much um, Mm -hmm. with this this narrative, is that it aligns itself with, um, uh, um, so the perception is that it aligns itself with those, with whites and males, and specifically white males, in a way that benefits them as opposed to other people. Um, And I think that that characterization has at least some level of merit if we look out there, but the way that people will make it politicized or they'll make it polarized or they'll make it racialized um, or even genderized to a degree. But the message itself and the prevailing way in which it's impacted the world has actually been positive for people of color and women. And so... um, When you look at the pages of Scripture, and I try to tackle some of the toughest um, uh, 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 provisions in the Bible and and, and passages in the Bible, both on the ethnicity side and on the gender side, and say, okay, look, how do we interpret these things? But also look at the other parts of it. There's so much more context where uh, uh, people of different ethnicities outside of the people of Israel are actually treated not only with equal dignity, but they become heroes of the story, even unlikely heroes, sometimes at the expense of the Jewish people in the stories. And if you were writing a racist book or a book that had an ethnocentrism that was centered only on the people of Israel, for example, in the Old and New Testament, you wouldn't make israel's enemies ethnic enemies so to speak you wouldn't make them the heroes yeah rather you would make them always the villains and they're not always the villains in fact they become some of the uh, paragons of moral virtue
0: well like this, the uh, you know um the good samaritan people don't understand the good samaritan is based on that very very idea that absolutely. someone outside of the jewish faith some, outside of these chosen people now become the, the moral hero um, yeah, in a story
1: absolutely. yeah <laughs> that's right and, and in fact by contrast to those who were sort of uh, hyper-religious as it were and identified themselves that way. Um, And so Jesus makes a scandalous thing. In fact, it's funny because the Good Samaritan parable is one parable when it comes to the ethnicity issue, but even on the women's issue, um, Jesus did something that was actually scandalous. Um, You see this in um, his use of women as proxies for God in Mm. parables, Luke chapter 15, um, uh, what he says, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. And then he he basically says, the woman in this story I'm telling you about who finds the coin and asks people to rejoice is like God when he finds the lost who have rejected him. He brings the angels together and says, rejoice with me for I found. He equates a woman. It, it, now, he's not trying to make a comment about God's gender. The point is he's making a comment about that that, that isn't an issue. Right. But he allows right. a woman to be the, the proxy for God in this. And that's a scandalous thing at his time, uh, given the prejudices and the misogyny of his day. But he would have none of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, so one of the the, the other part, it. the part of the part in the Bible is talking about when Women are actually the first to uh, arrive at the the tomb of the resurrected uh, Savior. The women are the you know the women who whose testimony in court was not even allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they are now accounted for as being the first eyewitnesses to seeing the resurrected Jesus. So I think that's really significant. But one of the things that is that really becomes the turning point for why people believe Christianity is a white man's religion is the slavery in America and yeah. how white slave owners justified slavery by using the bible and using scripture saying and this is a quote slaves you know obey your masters and i think yeah. and and this and you actually do an exegesis of that of that of that verse mm-hmm. explain why that shouldn't make us think that um, God is condoning slavery and that mm-hmm. uh, it is not, um, you know, and God is not endorsing a, you know, yeah. race-based chattel slavery.
1: Right, exactly. And and that is really the way to put it right at the end there is that first, um, you do have the word slave being used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Um, and of course, words can be used equivocally or analogically. And oftentimes we take our most recent encounter with that word or the most pervasive use of that word today and we anachronistically apply it to how it was used 2,000 or 3,500 years ago. So in the case of the Old Testament, when the Bible is describing slavery, sometimes it is describing, not condoning, but describing the fact of um, chattel slavery where someone can actually be considered property. But it's interesting in the Old Testament, um, even in the surrounding environs, slavery was actually never really based on your ethnicity or your race. It was just based on your level of power or the lack of it in that particular moment. But what the Bible regulates in the Old Testament is nothing like race-based chattel slavery. And the reason why we do that and we equate it with that is because when we hear slavery now, the first thing we think of is antebellum Southern slavery over which the Civil war was fought um, and the North Atlantic slave trade, and that's not what's being regulated in the Old Testament. And I can go into, and I do in the Bible go into specifics about why that is, but the, Bi- the Old Testament is not regulating slavery. It's regulating servitude, and that servitude is voluntary, yeah. and it's used to pay off debts. But what's interesting is, is that the provisions in the Old Testament actually um, require the so-called master or the one who owns the debt to set the person free even if they haven't paid off their debt every seven years and on jubilee on the 50th year if they've been in your service for five days you're supposed to let them go so and by the way and when you let them go you're supposed to give them of your own uh provision your own your cattle, your your land, some yeah. some 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 money, some crops, so they never you know, go back into that servitude. So Old Testament, so-called slavery, which is really servitude, was meant to actually end the whole process, not perpetuate it. And in the New Testament, we have to have full context here as well. So there was. Uh, chattel slavery in the Roman Empire, and Paul is talking about that. Not slavery um, that would be condoned by the Bible, but, but but a slavery that the Romans had instituted. And so these newly minted Christians who were under a Roman slavery context were being told, don't engage in man-stealing, I mean, in and, 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 and the kidnapping of people or the trading of slaves. First mm-hmm. Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 to 10, Paul condemns slave trading as a sin. Um, but the uh, the verse that you specifically mentioned, too, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21 to 23, uh, where Paul says something like, you know, um, uh, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Okay, so people say, oh, see, it's condoning slavery. Right, right. It doesn't condone slavery because the very next words are, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. And then he goes on to say that there are, there, there are people who are slaves and there are people who are free, and they're actually equal in Christ. And then at the very end of the passage, he says, do not become slaves of human beings. And, of course, when he does say slaves obey your masters, that could also mean people who are under a debt servitude, not chattel slavery. But isn't
0: the word slavery the, the, the bad translation? Because some, ta- some uh, uh, translations have actually started to use the word um. Bond servant, uh, bond servant yeah. uh, as as yeah. as a more accurate description of what this person actually is.
1: Yeah, and and more often than not, it's more it's more bond servant. There are times when it can be um, uh, translated in Greek as doulos. Um, And that word can mean bondservant or it can mean chattel slave. Um, And so I think sometimes you have like the ESV, for example, they talk about uh, there are times when we use this for slave or the times we use this for bondservant. And so they're trying to be responsible. But you're right. The trend is more towards bondservant, not to uh, sort of uh, water down what the Bible is saying, but to actually more accurately translate it, given the historical context in which the Bible was speaking. Um, And, you know, you look at at, uh, Philemon this book. It's a letter between Paul and someone else, like trying to um, address the issue about a runaway slave named Onesimus. And Paul is basically not advocating for the return of Onesimus to slavery. He's saying essentially that uh, whatever debt Onesimus owes to you, pay it to my account, I'll pay for it. Why? Because he's trying to emulate Christ who paid our debt. Uh, to, uh, to, to the Father for us. And then later on in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 and 9, Paul actually says, Onesimus is returning to you all, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you, who is, in other words, who is not your slave. So he actually advocates for the freeing of, whether it was a debt issue or it was a chattel slavery, we don't exactly know. But you're right. I think that the, the trend is to retranslate this word in a way that's more ac- historically accurate.
0: Well, I want to take a break right now on the Lighthouse Faith podcast. We're talking with Abdu Murray about his book, you know, not just a white man's religion, talking about Christianity. And there's of misconceptions in today's world about, you know, you know, is it just for white people and the white people, you know, push it forward. We'll be right back
1: pull up a chair and join me rachel campos duffy
0: and me former u.s congressman sean duffy as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across america
1: download from the kitchen table the duffy's at Foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts
0: and we're back with abdu murray who is the uh, christian apologist uh, which doesn't mean he's apologizing for for christianity <laughs> so he's a defender of the faith and his book uh, not just a uh, more than a white man's religion. Uh, why the gospel has never been merely white, male-centered, or just another religion, which is exactly what the modern culture actually thinks it is today, and that's a problem. Though I mean, you know, when you talk about in your book that you know the culture at large is is kind of is just kind of deciding what Christianity is and is not, isn't aren't they?
1: Isn't it? Well, they are, yeah. They really are, and culture really is doing this. And now, in some ways, you know, it has to be the kind of thing where what are the issues of the day, and, and can the Bible actually um, speak to these issues, or is it an outmoded, outdated book? And what I argue in the book is actually that even though we try to make Culture, the authority by which the Bible needs to be judged. The fact is, there's two facets here. The first facet is that um, if Jesus rose from the dead historically, and I believe he did, and I've debated this, and people can look up debates on it on YouTube um, and other places. Um, if he rose from the dead historically, as of it bodily and did, did actually do this miracle, mm-hmm. then he has credibility. And when he says that the words of Scripture are authority, in other words, culture, uh, while important, uh, subscribes to what the the Bible says as an unending or an unchanging standard, but it has some adaptability, but it's an unchanging standard of moral behavior and moral truths, then I think we should believe him because he rose from the dead. I didn't rise from the dead. My opinion doesn't, mean it doesn't matter more than anybody else's opinion does, but his matters more because he proved he was right. So that's facet one, that the Bible remains an unchanging standard by which culture is to be judged, not the other way around. Now, having said that, the beauty of the Bible and the beauty of Jesus Himself as as a person is to quote from Leslie Newbiggin: He is our eternal contemporary. So, when you think about what are the issues that fascinate the culture right now? And I don't mean fascinate just in a good way; I mean even in a bad way, where it's all we talk about. It's identity, yeah. It's, it's whether it's identity politics or the personal search for understanding true identity and all of us go through this it's race and ethnicity and it's gender issues these are all, this is what we're, we're we're is consuming our thoughts
0: yeah, I and mean, that's it, the idea is like but who who was decided who decided and is perpetuating this idea that christianity is for white males and it's very misogynistic um who is maybe it's not one person but I, a lot of entities are kind of pushing this but who's pushing it most
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think that um, uh, let me uh, say that I think there's two facets to this. Without getting you know political about it or whatever it is, but I look at a social kind of construct. Is one this has been swelling for a long time? What we're seeing now is actually the um, the uh, uh, the emergence of of a phenomenon that's been going on for a long time. And Carl Truman, in his book. Uh, the rise and triumph of the modern self um, at the risk of promoting another book while I'm talking about mine, uh, which I'm happy to, I'm happy to do. It's an excellent book. He talks about how this has been emerging for quite some time for decades and decades and decades. And so it's percolated in the halls of academia. It's bled its way out into the activists who have actually emerged from those same halls of academia now um, and who are talking about identity issues. And and, in another book I wrote, I talk about the, um, the the human desire for autonomy. And so you see uh, on, on sort of uh, whether it's it's left of center you see um, a lot of talk about identity and that's become the, the chief issue and um, it's you know centered around race and, and gender um, now on the right you might have the same thing where we're becoming Sort of equally obsessed, but in reaction to that movement, and so now everything's about that as well. And everything you, you can't talk about this at all, or it's a bad thing, or you're hyper, you know, racializing or genderizing the conversations. And so it, what ends up happening is you have um, photo negatives of each other, but they're both centered on the same picture, which is our identity. And so mm-hmm. what I think is is a solution here is to not say that that ethnicity and gender don't matter. I think that that's actually unbiblical. I think the Bible actually calls us to say the things are valuable. You know, we're not Gnostics. The Gnostics right. were in the in the early years were trying to say that the body was somehow a corrupt, evil thing; that physicality was bad, and that spiritual is all that matters. The Christian faith says no. The reason why we all are raised bodily, our souls return to our body forever. Is because the body is actually meant to be a good thing and a redeemable thing, so we'll have our heaven won't be gray, you know. We'll have our our, our various palettes of color and our and, and our wonderful mosaic of humanity, um, and uh, people will be men and women in heaven as well, um, and so this is a wonderful thing that I that 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 um, values our ethnicity, but doesn't make it its own idol. Right. And so right. the Bible, yes, because the Bible doesn't really make distinctions based on race, but on ethnicity, which is interesting. Now those, those, those distinctions are sometimes judged based on behavior. In other words, if an ethnic group is called out, genetically speaking, they're almost no different than the, 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 the Jews or the Mediterraneans uh, that the Bible is talking about. So there's no really genetic difference. Judgment is based on neither physical appearance or even, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that someone might be somewhat different um, uh, in, in shade or in um, uh, language, but rather it's based on cultural and social practices and individual behaviors like child sacrifice or horrible sins that need to be judged. And so God, this is an interesting thing. God judges people. And you see this throughout the Bible. God judges people, including the nation of Israel, um, not based on the the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. And that sounds familiar. Yes, it Um, certainly
0: does. It certainly, you know, and that is what the problem is today is, is that there is an association factor that happens in politics. And I've got to bring up, you know, what I mm -hmm. hear most often is Donald Trump and evangelicals. They Mm -hmm. look at that group and Paint the proverbial broad brush about mm-hmm. that they're Southern, they're white, they're male, and they're holding up the Bible um, as their authority. And that, to a very big section of the the population, says, oh, you know, let's not give in to, you know, Christian nationalism because they're not really— I mean, and, and the problem is, is that yeah. they're looking at Christianity, not at the people who are promoting this as being the sinners. And mm. when you say something very powerful. You say, you know, um, you know, Christianity actually provides the worldview um, that people are using to criticize yeah. Christianity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I had this, I recount the story of uh, this wonderful conversation I had with an African-American young man. And he was, um, we had the most calm endearing conversation over one of the most, most um, incendiary topics there is, you know, about race and identity in the Bible and this kind of thing. And we talked about some of, through some of these things. And the point here, though, in a, part, a big part of our discussion was, where does, this, the, where does the objectivity of the moral judgment Uh, That racism is wrong or that misogyny is wrong. Where does this come from? It can't come from us being accidental flotsam and jetsam of a universe that neither knows nor cares that we exist. Right. That can't be the source of it. Rather, these things being personal. Morality is personal, and if it is truly there and it's a transcendent reality, in other words, even when most of the country thought that women shouldn't vote or that people could be owned as property based on their race, even when everyone thought that was, that was at least legal, it was still wrong, even when everyone thought it was right. In other words, right. these moral truths have to be based on something objective beyond human opinion. Well, if morality is personal and it transcends, then it must be based on a transcendent person. And that's exactly who God is. So the very standards that the Bible gives us are the standards that we use to judge it as if it falls short. But if we look at it closely and we look at it through the lens of the life of Jesus, I think that we'll actually see that the very things we use to judge the Bible might actually indict us. Yeah. because of our obsessions with things in a way that's unhealthy. So one of my issues with some of the movement um, that has made this the issue of the day—it's such a strong issue—and some things we need to we need to confront. We need to we need to see some real change in some areas. We can't hide from that fact, and we can't hide from the blemished past of Christianity. We can't do that. However, we can't go the the pendular swing the opposite way where we make ethnicity and gender everything as well. Right. It's not nothing—that's for sure—and it's not everything either. And so. How I look at it, Lauren, is that God blesses us with ethnicity as an expression of who we are while endowing us with his image as the definition of what we are. So ethnicity and gender are expressions of who we are, but God's image is the definition of what we are. And I think if we start from that fundamental basis, then we can have real, I think, helpful discussions and we're not jettisoning the cure for the disease by calling it the disease itself.
0: And, you know, the the problem is, is that, you know, the people who believe otherwise are not going to read your book Um, Mm. and they're probably not going to listen to this podcast either. And the the tide is so moving in a direction that wants to discount discount, uh, Christianity as a white man's religion or as a... A misogynistic religion or as a religion that hates gays and mm-hmm. um, all of those things, how do you turn that tide? How can you, you know, like I like the t- like you know the tagline in the, the podcast says to preach the truth and love.
1: Yeah. And I think that preaching the truth and love is such an important part. So what I pray for the, um, and it's funny, our team just got done praying a little while ago about this, is that what do we know success to be? You know, whether this book is a success or whatever, what does that actually mean? I think to me um, that there will be those who read this book and want to share it with people who fundamentally disagree or who are angry or who are hurt because they've experienced something that has told them or made them believe that Christianity is a white man's religion and is not for them so hopefully they'll become equipped by what this is what, 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 what this book offers and it points to the, to the book that offers way more than my book does which is the Bible itself and of course the person of Christ and so people who find themselves on the sort of receiving end of the accusation of their religion being a white man's religion i hope that this is this equips them so that they can actually have loving um and compassionate uh conversations where they listen more than they talk but when they do they do talk they show the truth of what this bible is all about i've seen it happen i've seen people surprised by the words of scripture you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. um so what we're seeing is that Christianity is the white man's religion that's a meta narrative and it the meta narrative doesn't have any granular really support for it but it's easy to say uh, especially when you do see phenomena where people are starting to equate um sort of uh uh whether it's Donald Trump or other parts of uh, of uh, the Republican party or whatever it is or you know it's um uh, Alt right stuff or whatever, starting to equate that with 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 Christianity, and it's easy to do because people do that. They paint broad brushes, but they also take stereotypes, which is ironic, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is. Racism is all about stereotypes. Well, taking stereotypes and saying I'm going to reject something else because I have that stereotype in my mind is the problem. And so I think that if we can shatter the stereotype by being understanding, by listening, by trying to understand why someone's come to the conclusions they've come to, but then actually say that meta narrative doesn't have any granular truth it doesn't have actually any pillars that hold it up we can present the counter meta-narrative of scripture overall i mean look here's why i have hope lauren Mm -hmm. is that tom holland not the not the actor who played spider-man but the historian (laughs) who wrote who wrote dominion which is an excellent book everyone should read as well tom holland um set out to say that everything good in western culture came from the roman empire and in the course of writing that book he discovered that everything good in the roman empire came from christianity wow. and that um really it's christianity is so has so soaked western culture that all the things we hold dear like um, uh, love for the indigent and care for the indigent, equality for women, equality across ethnicities and and um, all these things, they actually come from the Christian message. And he makes that case in a book where he set out to, to, to provide that someone else gave us those values. No, he says, it's the Christian message. So if he can look at it and be changed in his opinions, well, who can't? I think so, there are people who won't, but we need to have hope and, and a positivity that it can happen.
0: So tell me about this young man you you sat down and had this very long conversation with. Was he convinced? Did he change his heart?
1: You know, um, uh, a few weeks later, after our conversation, we had a very long conversation. And this guy really knew his stuff. He really knew his stuff. And we went through a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. in the conversation about... I want to say three weeks later, maybe a month later, I got a note from him thanking me for the conversation. And he told me, Hey, I'm at a church now and I'm engaged in a Bible study. Um, even if that doesn't mean he might be a believer for all I know, but even if that means he's not a believer, it means that he actually went to go and look at it himself. And that is a huge victory in a world where we read headlines and not stories. We don't verify facts. We don't go to the source, and we give no one a chance beyond meta narrative. This young man was willing to go beyond the meta narrative and say, "I want to know if it's actually true." And even if he just engaged in the process, that's huge in a polarized world that wants to make our enemies look as bad as possible. Mm-hmm. And this young man wasn't, and that is, I think, uh, inspirational.
0: Wow. You're absolutely right. Well, the book is called More Than a White Man's Religion, Why the Gospel Has Never Been Merely White, Male-Centered, or Just Another Religion. Abdul Murray, thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. This is really amazing. Um, people can get the book now, right?
1: We can. It's out now.
0: Yeah, okay, right. great. Thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast.
1: It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Lauren, for having me.
0: And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day.